0: You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org slash sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. At the heart of our Christian faith is mystery. It's not the sort of mystery that you find in novels or movies. It's not a detective mystery that needs to be solved. It's a different kind of mystery. The word mystery comes with different senses, if you look it up in the dictionary. This mystery is mystery in the sense of something that has been hidden, but has now been revealed. Or something that is challenging and difficult, perhaps, to understand. But the challenges associated with this mystery can sometimes mean we we put it on the shelf or put it to the side. And the problem with that is that the mystery we're talking about today is crucial for our joy. The mystery that we're talking about today is essential for knowing God truly. Truly and essential for speaking about God faithfully. So if you want to know God truly and speak about Him faithfully, then there are mysteries that await you. Now, as we note, sometimes when we run up on mysteries, we set them to the side, or things that are difficult and challenging, and and we want to leave that with the seminary professors, or the preacher can handle that sort of thing, and and we, the average churchgoers, don't have to get into the, the heavy lifting and the difficulty and the challenges. That's for other people. The problem with that is, we put ourselves in a position to miss out on knowing God the way He desires to be known. And we say to God as He's revealing Himself that your revelation of yourself is unimportant. It's not worth my time. It's not worth my energy. It's not worth me sitting down and prayerfully considering the way you've made yourself known. And I don't think we want to say that to God. And I don't think we intend to say that to God. We just get scared. Now, I'm not saying everybody has to be a professional theologian. But every Christian ought to be on a journey of learning to speak and think more faithfully about who God is. And speak and think more faithfully about how He's revealed Himself. And all of us are at different places in that journey. And so when we come together and we come to the Scriptures, we spend time hearing how God has described Himself, hearing how God has revealed Himself, and considering that prayerfully and worshipfully together, as we're drawn into His life and into these mysterious realities, so that we can know Him more deeply, and speak about him to one another, to our families, to our colleagues, to strangers, more faithfully. We do not want to tell God that he's not worth our time. If we do, we are in danger of missing out on depths of joy that we cannot imagine. Because knowledge of God and knowing God in Christ is to be prized and valued above all things. And that means we bring ourselves to the mystery of the nativity. Because the mystery of the nativity is the source of our joy. From start to finish, without it, without Bethlehem, without the manger, without Jesus, there is no joy. None. Now, we're not the first ones to struggle with the mystery of the nativity, uh, and different people struggle with the mystery of the nativity in different ways. How can God be full? like how can Jesus be fully God and fully human that boggles our minds? We struggle with the categories and, 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 and sometimes we, we kind of put it aside and other times we just kind of ignore the critiques and, and we struggle with it. And I wonder if we struggle with it because our assumptions about the nature of reality are just wrong. One of the assumptions we make, and you can nod if this is something that maybe is on the radar for you, is that we think that spiritual things and material physical things are polar opposites. Is that fair? We tend to think that you've got spiritual stuff over here, and you've got physical stuff over here, and they're in different dimensions or zones or spaces or, or something, And we live in the physical world, and God lives in some sort of spiritual experience, and they're just different, and they're separate, and they're opposite. Black, white, here, there, and they don't really overlap and interlock. Is that fair? If I'm getting that wrong, you can tell me. Does that resonate? This is yes. We think about salvation in spiritual terms, right? I just need to get saved from my body so that I can escape the world and get off into this other world beyond the blue or something. And I know that's true because it's in some of our hymns. (laughs) And it's in some of our contemporary songs. And I know it's true because I've been pastoring for a few years now and everywhere I've ever been, I hear it. I just need to shed this mortal coil and... Get off to a spiritual experience. The trouble with that assumption that the spiritual things and physical things are, are opposite and don't come together, the trouble with that is it's nowhere found in Scripture. Nowhere. I challenge you, find me a text, just one, that portrays spiritual things and physical things as opposite and far apart, and never made for each other. Because when I read the Bible, I find human beings made in the image of God. On page 1. The God who is Spirit makes human beings who are physical, made out of stuff, made out of earth, who are material. And the physical world, material creatures, your bodies are made to bear the image of the God who is Spirit. That sounds to me like the physical world and the spiritual world are complementary, not altogether distinct. It sounds to me like that which is spiritual and that which is physical are made for each other by God's design. And then as I continue to read through creation narratives, I discovered that the, the entire context for our knowing God is this world. God never introduces uh, Himself to us. God never reveals Himself to human beings outside of physical space. Have you ever thought about that? Like, He makes a world, says it's good, puts image-bearing creatures into the world, says it's very good, And then that physical world becomes the context for God's self-revelation. Everything that He has made, all things, are the context in which the God who is Spirit reveals Himself. Not because spiritual things and physical things are equal and opposite of some sort, but because they're made for each other. Because God desires to make Himself known through physicality. And so we probably shouldn't be quite as surprised as we are when we come to the manger. Because if we've been reading our Bibles closely, we know that human beings were made to bear the image of God. God. And so when God shows up in a human body and our minds are boggled and we struggle with the mystery of that, and it is mysterious, and I don't claim to have figured it out and you won't ever figure it out, the good news is you don't have to figure out all the details to experience the joy that Jesus offers and provides when he joins us to himself, but that doesn't give us an excuse for not considering and worshiping him as the God-man. We have in Jesus the ultimate human being who bears the image of God uniquely and perfectly. Not just the image, but the exact imprint of His being, we are told. And so, one of the reasons I think, one of the reasons I fear that we struggle with the God-man, and we're not the first ones. The church has been struggling with how to talk about Jesus for centuries. Is because we come with the wrong assumptions. We read the Bible assuming physical world's over here, you get saved out of that into a spiritual world. When the story the Bible really tells, tells is that God who His Spirit has become incarnate which means to take on flesh to save this world that he has made and called very good. And at the end of the story if you read all the way to the end we are told that God makes his home here. The dwelling of God is among mortals. and He will be their God and they will be his people. So from cover to cover creation to new creation, and incarnation all the way through. God has created physical space to be the space in which He manifests the glory of His presence. Whether it's image-bearing creatures in the garden, the image of the invisible God in the sun, Or the full manifest presence of the triune God in the new creation. The whole story is about how God has designed physical space to make his spiritual presence known. The created world is the vehicle for the revelation of God's spiritual self. If that helps us with the mystery, thanks be to God. There's still some things to sort through as we struggle through this mystery, refusing to put it on the shelf. It's always comforting to me to know that I'm not the first person to wrestle with something. And we find in the opening pages of the Gospels that there was a man wrestling (laughs) with the person of Jesus. Now, Joseph wasn't the first person to wrestle with Christology, the doctrine of Christ, I suspect Mary did first. First human being to wrestle with how God can inhabit human flesh was that little girl who offered herself fully to what God wanted to do in and through her. But her fiancé had to deal with those issues as well. And we're told that He intended to deal with them in a kind way. After their betrothal, Mary is pregnant, and Joseph could unleash the full fury of the law. And yet, he's willing to keep it quiet and just go their separate ways until God intervenes and reveals that what's happening in this instance is unique That there's no other birth before or after that is like this. And in this moment, we begin to discover what would later become the language of the creeds, the language of the church, that Jesus is truly God and truly human because we are told about His birth from a woman, and we are told about His conception as the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, everyone born is human, right? If you wanna be human, you gotta have a mama. Right, mamas? I brought you into this world, that whole thing. We are presented here with a fully human Jesus. In fact, no one at His birth was questioning that. No one at Jesus' birth was thinking, you know, maybe He's fully God and just sort of sort of human, like some folks in the 4th century said. No, it was the God part they were wrestling with. Like, we know what normal human beings look like. But even here in this first chapter, we are seeing how the early church began under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to wrestle with the identity of Jesus. Just hear it again. Joseph intends to dismiss Mary quietly. Not to exact any sort of legal vindication for this unplanned pregnancy. Maybe I should say unexpected. Because God certainly had His plan. But just verse 20, as he resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. So you've got God sending an angel taking initiative to protect his son he's going to do that repeatedly in the opening chapters of matthew just as joseph was resolved to do this an angel of the lord appeared to him in a dream and said joseph son of david don't be afraid to take mary as your wife don't be afraid of the scorn that often comes with unexpected pregnancies don't be afraid of the public disgrace. Don't be afraid. Instead, trust. Because the child that is conceived in her is the work of the Holy Spirit. He's got a mama. And God is behind the birth of this child. And in that moment, the New Testament presents us a mystery that we have wrestled with for 2000 years. The person of Jesus, fully human, fully God. And we do well to offer ourselves to worship the one who is in some ways mysterious. Because his birth, his nativity is The source of our joy. That mystery is the foundation of our joy. Matthew, as he reflects on the account of Jesus' birth, offers us some theological reflection. We don't know where his sources were. We don't know if he talked to Joseph or Mary or collected some other things that came along. Luke kindly tells us that he went and did some uh, interviews and then brought it together. Matthew doesn't give us that kind of information, but whatever he received truthfully, he considered and wrote about it in light of the Old Testament, particularly Isaiah particularly Isaiah 7. And when he discovers this story, this account of this very unique birth, and he goes back and reads Israel's scriptures and sees that God was aiming at this direction all along for hundreds of years. Isaiah 7:14, "Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall name him Emmanuel." And as Matthew reflects on this and kind of offers us some apostolic theological reflection after experiencing Jesus and knowing and seeing Him firsthand and hearing Him teach and and encountering Him in relation to His family and all of these things, He comes and He testifies to us at the very beginning of His gospel that in Jesus, God is with us. Which is why, once again, we can't shelf this mystery. Because if you want to know God, you've got to know Him in Jesus. Jesus. Say that again. If you want to know God, He makes Himself known in Jesus. He does not make Himself known in other ways. He makes Himself known in Jesus. In Jesus, God takes a human face. And He doesn't just put it on for a little while like a mask and wander around Galilee and do some miracles and signs and wonders and here's a show everybody and then take off the mask and go off back to heaven. No, He puts on human flesh. God is with us in Jesus. He is born in a manger. Born of a virgin. Lives a full human life. Dies a full human death. Is raised a full human resurrection. And now, is enthroned at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And still to this day and forevermore, God Almighty wears a human face and has a human name, and His name is Jesus. Now, the One who sits at the right hand of God the Father, the first century Jewish body, likely bearded, probably shorter than me, olive-skinned in all likelihood, Right now, at this moment in heaven, there sits a human material body who lives forevermore and reigns over all things. And he is the one who inhabited space for you, and who was born for you, and who died for you, and has been raised for you, and now intercedes for you. Let's not run from the mystery. Let's not pretend it's something we can put off till tomorrow. The mystery of the nativity is the source of our joy, brothers and sisters. The mystery of the nativity is the source of our joy because that is the place where God comes to be with us and he is with us in Jesus. And he does it to rescue us. Because from the garden forwards, our rebellion, our transgression, our insistence on being Lord of our being, Lord of our lives, Lord on our own terms, has separated us from the God who made us, who loves us, who has endowed us with His image. And thanks be to God, he didn't give up on us. Paul says in Romans that he is long suffering. In his forbearance, he overlooks sins previously committed. That's an older way of saying he's patient. And you may think he is patient. I'm a mess. I've been a mess for a long time. And I got issues and I got. Sin in my life, and God is patient, and He's been patient. And you know, because there's a whole lot more people with a whole lot more issues and a whole lot more rebellion than any one of us, and His patience, His forbearance extends century after century and millennia after millennia until Jesus comes and receives in His person. The just penalty for our transgression. That's what is being anticipated when the angel says he will save his people. It's kind of an introduction to the whole gospel, isn't it? Here's what's coming, folks. He'll save his people from their sin. There's a cross in the future and a resurrection and an ascension, and a second coming. He will do this. And Jesus, the God-man, fully God, fully human, comes to bridge that divide, to reconcile that brokenness to take the being of God on the one hand, the nature of God on the other, and the nature of human life, and to draw us together in His body to reconcile us for joy. Joy. This is about joy. But the joy only comes with the mystery. Now, you may be thinking, when are we going to get to Hebrews? And we really already have, haven't we? But the reason I wanted to read these texts side by side, number one, after 16 years or so preaching the same texts every Christmas, you sort of think, let's get creative and try to do something a little bit different. Uh, and there's only a handful of Christmas texts anyway, so maybe we can, what do we do? And Began kind of thinking, well, you know, a lot of times with Christmas, we get a little bit sentimental, don't we? We pull out our mangers, and this, this is good, this isn't a criticism, but let, let's just kind of sit back and reflect on it for a second. We pull out our mangers, and we got sweet little baby Jesus laying in the hay, and there's cows, and there's shepherds, and it's, it's just precious, isn't it? It's just precious. And we get kind of sentimental. And I think sometimes at Christmas and in Advent, it's very easy to forget That sweet little baby Jesus is now the enthroned king of all things. Sometimes we forget that the manger is the starting point, not the finish point. Sometimes we forget that the manger is the entrance. The nativity is the entrance of God, step one in his mission but the exaltation and ascension of Christ and His second coming, when His exaltation is fully realized in all things and all places, that's where this thing is going. So it's good to read Matthew and Luke alongside Hebrews and Colossians. It's good to remember That that helpless babe laying in a manger is also the one who is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. The one who was sustained by his mother's care Sustains all things by His powerful Word. The One who is the Eternal Son and has taken on human flesh, has made purification for our sins, and now sits at the right hand of majesty on high. The baby in the manger is also now and forever, the King of heaven and earth. That will not change. It will not change. As I read through Hebrews, I can't help but think of the nativity. Verse 5, to which of the angels. One of the ways that the logic of this text works is Is The author to the Hebrews wants us to see how superior Jesus is. And there are a variety of different things and creatures that he's going to, uh, throughout the whole document, express that Jesus is superior to all sorts of things. But the first one is, he's superior to angels. So which one of the angels, as cool as they are, and as great as they are, and as flashy and fierce as they are, to which one of those guys did God ever say, You're my son. Today I have begotten you. Angels are created not begotten we are created jesus is begotten not created the father eternally begets his son and brings him forth and so to which of the angels has he ever said today i've begotten you or i will be his father and he will be my son and again when he brings the firstborn into the world that's about the nativity It's about God's Son coming into the world. Hebrews, Matthew are talking about the same thing, but they're taking different angles, aren't they? So it's good for us when we come to the nativity to take the whole counsel of Scripture into account and not just sort of narrow down on passages that have become quite sentimental and almost at times, I'm not saying they are this in themselves, but they are portrayed this way, caricatured. Silent night holy night. Yes, holy night. Probably not all that silent. <laughs> Marked by fear, and cries, and blood, and screams, and life. This Christmas. Take the nativity in light of the entire witness of the Bible and let your eyes be drawn from the manger to the throne of heaven from which we expect a Savior. And when He comes, He will transform our humble bodies into the body of His glory. And when He comes, He will set this world free from bondage to decay. That's what the cosmic king does. That's full salvation. That's Bible. Again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. You know you get the full deity of Jesus in this text. It would be enough for him to say he's the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of his being. Not a copy, not a duplicate. You know, when you... Copy machines are better now. It used to be if you ran a copy, like, the duplicate was always a bit of a mess. And you knew, like, this is not the original. He is the exact imprint of the being of God. And yet, to make the point, we are told that the angels worship him. And if you read your Bible, you know there's only one being who gets worshipped. And his name is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's only one who is worshipped. And to worship anything else is rebellion. But the angels worship the Son. The angels worship Jesus. This is an exclamation point in the language of Hebrews to the full deity of Jesus. This is God with us. Jesus with us. And Hebrews hasn't forgotten about the humanity of Jesus. We didn't read the rest of chapter 2. But we are reminded very quickly, as all of these texts hold together: full deity, full humanity, full mystery. Like I'm not trying to explain how Jesus, how deity and humanity come together in the person of Jesus. There's some theories out there; different people try. It, but today, I'm not particularly worried about parsing the theories. What I want is worship of Him. Who shares the same things. Our flesh and blood. Verse, chapter 2 verse 14. Since therefore the children share flesh and blood. He himself likewise shared the same things. So that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Through and through. Whether it's gospels or epistles. The deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ are brought together for the goal of our freedom and joy and comfort. You want comfort? Do do you want comfort? One person said amen. Like, Let us remain uncomforted. (laughs) Do you want to be comforted? The mystery of God in human flesh. Not to be solved, not to be parsed, but to be worshipped. Jesus is the source of our comfort and joy. So the exhortation, brothers and sisters, pursue the mystery. No time is wasted that is time spent pursuing Jesus. No time is wasted when that time is spent pursuing Jesus. We can waste time a lot of ways. We can waste time doing good things. Time is never wasted when that time is spent worshiping the One who came to give us ultimate Joy. And the worship of Jesus and the glory of Jesus is not in contrast with our joy. The glory of Jesus, the exaltation of Jesus, is entirely compatible and goes together with our comfort and satisfaction. His glory and our joy belong together. And when He is exalted, when He is glorified, when we rejoice in Him, when we are satisfied in Him, when we are undistracted, there is life. So I want to challenge you and me for the next few weeks. Because those ads are going to pop up and we're going to get distracted, or somebody's going to call and Oh, there's another party to get on the calendar. Oh goodness, last minute Christmas shopping and you better get ahead of it because half of the packages are in that ravine in Blount County somewhere. (sighs) We're going to feel pressed and we're going to feel anxious and then the holidays are going to roll around and some people that we miss aren't going to be here and we're going to feel sad or maybe we're not with the people we want to be with. In every moment, in every space, Jesus Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Until He comes again. And we see the very face that was laying in the manger in glory. Do not let that be lost on you. The face that cried out In Bethlehem, the face of the baby Savior is now the face, the same face, of the resurrected and exalted King of all things. And He calls you to believing obedience for your joy.